You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Shane Harris. I'm a national security reporter here at The Post, and I'm very happy today to welcome Ron Nicewaner for a conversation about his new Showtime series, Fellow Travelers. Ron, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to talk to you. Hey, Shane, I'm really happy to be here. Um, so, Ron, this is a, a sprawling and tumultuous love story, to put it mildly. And folks got an idea there in the intro of the time that this is spanning. We start in the McCarthy era amid the Lavender Scare. It travels forward into the 80s amid the AIDS crisis. Um, the story follows these two characters, um, Hawkins Fuller, played by Matt Bomer, who is a war hero now mid-level foreign service officer with aspirations of a great career ahead of him, uh, and Tim Laughlin, played by Jonathan Bailey, who is a, a young, idealistic Senate aide to one Joe McCarthy, uh, who figures pretty prominently as well. Um, tell us a little bit about who these characters are and where we meet them when the show begins. But, you know, I love uh, love stories that about people who basically are not meant to be together. Uh, you know, and that and it's the there are the, it's a attraction of opposites. And you know, uh, Hawkins Fuller is a survivor, and actually he enjoys life. Uh, and that, that was very important. Uh, he finds ways to enjoy his life, which for him means often having uh, sexual pleasure with anonymous strangers. Uh, and he sort of seems fearless. And I think the only thing that he actually fears is uh, love, uh, because then he'd have to show us a bit of weakness. Um, and uh, Tim Laughlin has the opposite worldview that we're put on Earth to make the world a better place. And he has a mission. And he's a an, an fervent uh, anti-communist, mostly because he's a devout Catholic. And in the 50s, uh, Catholicism and anti-communism were very uh, tightly uh, connected. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned the fact that this is a love story. I read somewhere that you actually don't like love stories, but I love that this is these one, you know, where these people, they, they truly seem like they are not meant to be together at all. Uh, uh, talk a little bit about uh, the inspiration for this. It's based on the Thomas Mallon novel, Fellow Travelers of the same name. What drew you to a story about, you know, two men who are coming together at a time when being openly gay was not just dangerous to their career, it was I mean, arguably dangerous to their life and certainly could have ruined both of them. What, what was attractive about that part of the story to you? That relationship is at the center of the novel. I mean, we expanded, we went beyond the 50s to other decades and we expanded with other characters. But that love story actually is the thing that drew me to it. And when I said I don't like love stories, I don't really like soap operas. I certainly yeah. don't like scenes where people sit and express their emotions to each other. Uh, that probably tells you something about who I am personally. Um, and, uh, I, and I really, I love uh, and was schooled in emotional drama that has high stakes. So, you know, spending three years on Homeland, for example, spending a lot of time in Washington, researching for that show, meeting a lot of interesting people. And, you know, uh, to me, high stakes, uh, uh, love to me is always high stakes in a way, because there's always a danger uh, to being in love, and our tagline, uh, love is dangerous, I think I, I, I suggested. Uh, but to raise the stakes by putting at a time, uh, that relationship at a time when your life and your career could be ruined, simply if someone saw you coming out of a particular apartment at a, a particular time. And you know, it's not that foreign to me. I'm not that old. I wasn't around during the Lavender Scare. But I grew up in the 
I came of age in the 60s and 70s, and I, you know, I, I never heard the word homosexual spoken aloud until I went to college. And even then, it wasn't often spoken aloud. So I, I grew up thinking that what I was was the unspeakable thing. And that, so I really understood what it was like to live in a time when homosexuality and homosexuals were invisible in all, all, all culture, certainly the culture that was available to a young man in coal mining Pennsylvania in the 60s and 70s. You know, it's it kind of it's interesting. You worked on Homeland. So much of this feels like, in some ways, an espionage thriller because Hawk and Tim are going to great lengths to cover their tracks and to hide from everyone around them. Uh, talk a little bit about that a bit. It's it's the the ways in which they you show them having to really hide who they are at the same time that they're trying to explore a relationship, which of course I think was not unique. I think anybody who was in a, in a closeted relationship like that then probably experienced. Sure, you know, uh, Mr. Mallon's novel sent me into a lot of research, particularly about the Lavender Scare. And you know, I, I, one of the things I read and learned about was that Washington in the 50s was basically the center of the world. You know, the United States was tasked with its allies with rebuilding Europe. And that, and you went, if you were young and you wanted to make a difference, you went to Washington, D.C. And, you know, people were coming off the farm and out of their small towns and they were being liberated in Washington, D.C., straight or gay. They were having relationships that they wouldn't have had back home. And one of the things that happened if you were uh, gay uh, was um, that it would be suggested that you immediately pair up with a gay person of the opposite, opposite sex. So a gay man arrives, someone would say, I'm going to introduce you to my friend, Mary. You know, she's a lesbian. The two of you should be out in the town. You should go dating. You should always be together. You should never, ever be out with just you and a guy having dinner in a restaurant. That should never happen. So you're paired off. And there's a funny story about actually a dinner party where this woman was having, where the same sex couples were like in the privacy of her home around the dinner table. And her mother came to the door. And by the time she walked her mother from the front door to the dining room, they'd all switched. So they were sitting next to their opposite gender partner. And, you know, that kind of, and we're laughing about that because it sounds comical now. But, you know, living, you know, it created a kind of an adventure to have. But once uh, the uh, investigations began and what people will see in the series is this show is meticulously researched. So when you see the FBI raiding someone's apartment and questioning two women who live together, going through their underwear drawers, that everything in that scene is from a transcript. Uh, you, there's a polygraph uh, scene. Everything from that is from the record. Uh, everything that uh, everything that McCarthy and Cohn say in public in our show, they actually said in 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 public. What you know, obviously we we imagine what might have gone on behind the scenes. So that we, I wanted the show to be this meticulously researched part of LGBTQ history of a time of incredible persecution. I mean, it wasn't a subtle, there was nothing subtle about it. President Eisenhower signed an executive order saying sexual deviants cannot work in the federal government. And people who came to Washington with the hope of building these careers and changing the world, their lives were destroyed. At one point, somebody from the M unit said, we're experiencing, the M unit was a State Department's investigative tool investigating alleged homosexuals. We're seeing one suicide a week. It's an extraordinary period of history. And I think, you know, it's not necessarily one that is known to, you know, subsequent generations of gay people, right, who didn't live through it. I mean, you know, it was, it was unknown to me as I was coming out in my 20s until I really got I, to Washington. Yeah, and didn't, didn't appreciate it at all. Um, 
you know, one of the things that struck me that's so interesting about this pairing of these characters, Tim and Hawk, is they both know they have to stay in the shadows, but from the beginning, you kind of feel like Tim is the one who is trying to push things forward and is always wanting to be with him. And at the same time that Hawk is drawn to him, he's also a tremendous threat to him as well. And that dynamic was so fascinating that they were, you know, there's a power play that goes on between them throughout the series that way. Yeah. You know, my great uh, director, executive producer, Dan Minahan, who directed the first two hours said, you know, of Tim, is that Tim is looking for a sacred ecstatic experience. Yeah. So he wants to be, he wants to have transformative experiences. So whether it's in church with God, uh, or it's falling deeply in love with this unknowable, un uh, elusive uh, uh, person, that that's what is Tim looking for. He's kind of, he's just, he can't help but be an open person. You know, he, um, you know, and that actually caused, that is danger to Hawk. You know, Hawk knows how you know, we can go to a restaurant, you'll be my cousin or my nephew, we'll act a certain way, we'll behave a certain way. And Tim agrees, but he can't stick to the rules. You know, he, he just is too open and vulnerable and emotional to do that. And that brings the, the tension into the relationship. Now, I'd read that you initially, when you, you optioned the book some years ago, right, and imagined this, Fellow Travelers, as a film. So what led you to decide to do it as an eight-part series instead of a feature? Yeah, you know, Shane, I think that's a mistake. I don't know who entered that into the record that I thought of it first as a film. I think somebody said that at some Q&A and I just thought- I'm glad we're correcting it then because we like, we'd like to check facts here. I always here. thought it was a multi-part uh, uh, series of some sort. Um, and you know, and I, because I had come to LA really to get further involved in television, I'd done some writing some pilots from my home in upstate New York and writing features. But I, when I moved to LA, I said to my managers, get me out of my house. You know, I wanted the, the experience that writers have in television, which is to be at the center of the creation this, and the center of the production, you know, and not to be sidelined once you hand in your final draft. And do, when you, because you've written features before, I mean, do you find that you get to immerse more in the process when you have all of that room of eight parts to tell the full story? I mean, it, now when I, if the last time I worked on a feature script was, was quite a while ago, but, you know, as you're, you, know, you get to page 80, and you, which is, you know, you, it's 120 page limit. You go like, what? I, I just got started. You yeah. know, and it feels very interesting. So you know, th this, uh, the larger drama uh, over several episodes, it's just so much fun, you know, yeah. and finding that right number, I think we found the right number. Uh, and so it does have an end in sight, although maybe there's an anthology version of a series that we follow. We have certain, we take certain themes and certain time periods and, you know, do love story thriller and to, uh, Keep going with that. So that was a little pitch to my employers. I like it. No, I, I endorse this. Uh, so we have a clip of the show to share with people. Um, so wow. let's let's get that ready. Um, this is a scene early on in the story that really gets at I think what we were talking about here of the of the tension between what each of these men actually wants in the relationship and what they're afraid of. And this is uh, we'll see uh, Tim here played by Jonathan Bailey and Hawk played by Matt Bomer. Uh, so let's have a look at the clip. I'm afraid. I imagine a lot of people are afraid tonight. I don't mean the executive order. I'm afraid of you. I don't know what to do. What should I do? 
My advice? Go inside. Shut that door. Then lock it behind you. Unfortunately, the lock is broken. I got to confess, Ron, I found myself yelling to Tim, don't do it, <laughs> you know, because you can just see, like you're imagining the, 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 what he's about to embark on by actually letting this man into his life. It's going to be transformative, and of course, the show, but there's just so much pain and the hiding that's going to go with it. But talk about that scene, because it, it just sets up so much of the relationship between these two guys. Well, I love that scene, and I'm very proud of it. And I, um, it is actually interesting to show to people who may not have seen any of the show yet, this, you're seeing Hopkins Fuller at a vulnerable moment. Don't expect many of those. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, and he, uh, what, uh, so he's at the, he, you know, they have gone through the pilot episode uh, and President uh, Eisenhower's executive orders has, has landed. And they've also experienced um, uh, somebody that Hawk was once involved with attempted suicide, you know, under, uh, under investigation. So the, 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 the screws are being tightened on everybody in Washington at this particular time. And Hawk has revealed himself in an early scene to Tim as someone who is not going to fall in love, basically. He says it more eloquently than that. Um, and he, but in a moment of vulnerability, he comes to Tim and asks simply to be, to be able to go up to his room and hold him. And, um, you know, I just know, it's, it's so funny. I, I, a DP said to me on the set, I think you are half Hawk and half Tim, <laughs> which is <laughs> probably true, you know? And I just, uh, I think Hawk is giving Tim a warning. He says, lock the door. You know, it's, it's not going to be, may not be good for you. I'm not good yeah. for people. You know, and that is that self kind of, that I think Hawk is totally pragmatic. And, uh, but he's taking a risk. And of course, Tim is taking a risk too. And, you know, love is dangerous, but it, if it wasn't dangerous, it wouldn't be, I mean, when I say this, oh boy, but the danger of emotional love, the emotional danger is, it's, it's this great adventure. It's the great adventure to allow yourself to love somebody. I'm not certainly not saying, you know, it's a great adventure to live in a time of oppression yeah. uh, when you can be even gay, but I'm saying is the great dangerous adventure is allow to allow yourself to love somebody because we're all gonna, you know, we all, and I kept saying this on the set, you know, we're not, there are no noble victims in fellow travelers. There are no victims at all, actually in fellow travelers. And this isn't just an LGBTQ story. All human beings experience grief, loss, heartbreak, love, joy you know and so we are connecting to a i hope a bigger human experience yeah and in the show we should tell people too it does explore you know other lgbtq characters it explores uh you know relationships between women as well i mean so there, it's more than just these two men though they're the, the primary focus of the of the show um i want to ask you about the decision of casting Matt Bomer and Jonathan Bailey. I mean two very talented actors gay actors who have largely played straight roles before was it important for you to cast gay actors to play gay characters, or was that incidental for you? Um, 
you know, I'm just going to go back to one thing and just say, just to, for, for our audience today, among the characters that we follow, it was very important to me, we have uh, the third lead is Jelani Aladdin playing Marcus uh, Gaines, who is a black journalist who falls in love yeah. with a black drag queen. And we do follow, so we follow, it's a diverse set of characters and we follow them and, and Allison Williams playing Hawk's wife. Those are the five people we follow for 35 years. Um, we, it was important to us. It was a, a preference on our part to find LGBTQ actors for these roles. It was not uh, a deal breaker. You know, I, I, you know I, to say absolutely not, you know, if they, the absolute right person came. So we are very lucky in that uh, there are brave people. Uh, and you know, Matt's been out for actually quite a while. Yeah. He was honored by the human rights campaign a couple of weeks ago for that, that life that he lives, that open, honest life. And, you know, to have the people who are perfect for their roles, uh, uh, who, uh, and all of our LGBTQ characters uh, are, all of them, not just Matt and Johnny, but Jelani Aladdin, Noah Ricketts, um, Aaron Newford, who plays Mary, they are LGBTQ people. How, in your time in Hollywood, how have you seen that idea of representation change. I mean, there was a time, I mean, we could go back, I mean, Philadelphia, the, you know, the groundbreaking film for which you were your screenwriter and were nominated for the Academy Award. I mean, that really introduced people in a way to not just the AIDS crisis, you know, but to gay identity, gay life, uh, you know, notably played by Tom Hanks, a straight actor. But things have changed so much in the way that we think about representation and straight men playing gay men and gay men playing gay characters. How, just reflect on that a little bit in your career. How have you seen that evolve and change? You know, uh, obviously there are more gay characters, you know, uh, available for us to watch. And, you know, I think it is easier to go in and uh, you don't get sort of, uh, you don't get cold stares by saying, you know, oh, and I, I have this uh, LGBTQ show, and this LGBTQ character. For me, what, uh, where we are now, and I tried to be a fellow travelers, is that we allow uh, gay characters to be as complicated and flawed as their heterosexual counterparts. You know, because I was experiencing that for a while, that if I was trying to pitch or write LGBTQ characters, people wanted them to be noble. They wanted them to be the, the righteous ones, you know, who were victims of society. And, you know, that is, uh, I think when I said yuck about, <laughs> in the New York Times about love stories, I was saying that about the victim is, that's melodrama. When, you know, when good people are the victims of bad, the bad society, that, and that bores me completely. So that's where I think we can be now. You know, I kept saying about Hawkins Fuller, when there, when there was any pushback, I'd say like, but would you be saying this about Don Draper? Like, I, I, you know, or Tony Soprano or Walter White? I mean, why can't Hawkins Fuller, because he's gay man, be complicated like those guys. What are you, what are you trying to protect? You're just making him boring. You know, I mean, I usually, and I, as you can see, I won the argument. Well, I mean, I'm, it's an interesting comparison of Hawk to those other characters, because I mean, as, I, as I'm watching the series, it's hard to like him, you know, because I, mean, I, I think you take sides maybe as a, as a viewer early on, and I felt myself like very much on Tim's side in the equation. But you mentioned that there are these very few moments of vulnerability uh, that he has, and he is so closed off, and he is so, you know, manipulative in his relationship with Tim and other people around him too. But that's a lot of fun to write as a writer, isn't it? It gives you a lot to work with. Well, I'd also say <clears throat> it's fun for an audience. 
you know, I, I think that sometimes if when there's pressure from uh, you know, people in charge of things, uh, you know, to make characters likable, that, that word, I literally just stop listening. That's, I'm like in a meeting, I might have a smile on my face and I'm thinking, well, I'm not gonna be working on this project. Um, because that, it, a, a likable character is, what does that mean? You know, how about, how about a compelling, fascinating character? You know, Hawkins Fuller, by, by the way, uh, one of my directors, Destiny Ekaraga, who uh, directed episodes three and seven, when I asked her why she wanted to be part of the show, she said, I love Hawkins Fuller. You know, she's a 40 year old black woman from London. And she said, I love Hawkins Fuller. I want to be Hawkins Fuller. I want to be beautiful. I want to have sex all the time and not care about anything. But yeah, I said, you're hired. You know, so there is pleasure and in watching Hawk. And I've seen this, the pilot with audiences. They really enjoy how he's in control of everything. He always has, has the right thing to say. You know, anything that rattles him and you know that he's, going to get out of that situation somehow, you know, and I hope what you're waiting for is to see when he puts himself in situations. And that's why the time frame, the alternating time frames are really important. You know, I think that we, we go into the eighties right away and we go into the sixties later and the seventies and they don't happen quite in chronological order. It's a, an adventurous time use of time, but we also see Hawk in 1986 in a, in a different place than he is in the 50s. And I think it's really important to see that he can be stu st uh, startled by something. He can be moved by something. He's not open and emotional yet, but he is. He's his soul is yearning for something in the 80s that seems to be blocked off in the 50s. And I think uh, uh, I'm, I'm really glad that we were able to come up with those alternating time frames to do that for all the characters. Yeah, and that works really well because you see as the audience that he's going to grow somehow. You know, he is not just this smooth as silk kind of user of people. Uh, one thing I want to talk to you about too, and this has gotten a lot of attention from critics, and I think it's something you, you all did very well, it are, are the sex scenes in the show. I mean, they're incredibly intimate. They are uh, quite steamy, many of them. But, you know, the thing that really came across to me as I was watching them is they are so much about power. And, and it is power, it is sex scene setting the power between these two men. You know, there's very much Hawk as the dominating force in the relationship and Tim as somebody who's kind of giving himself over. And talk about that because these aren't just, you know, sex scenes for the sake of being provocative. They really are setting up a, a, a power balance between these two characters. Uh, that was the rule actually on the set uh, that we had that all, all the scenes actually are about power. But especially the sex scenes, you know, Oliver, uh, Oscar Wilde said, um, you know, all, everything in life is about sex, except for sex. Sex is about power. And that was a, when we really, you know, we, 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 my directors and I went to that over and over again, and the actors loved it, it because then that gave them something to play as opposed to like, oh, I'm, I'm interested in having sex with you. Um, you know, and the, and the dynamic keeps shifting. We had a couple of rules actually about the sex scenes, which one of which is that we would never repeat the same act. And I have mm. to say, when my co-writers and I, when we got to episode eight, we were really kind of flummoxed. Like, what? <laughs> what happened? Wait, what? Well, no, we did that already. No, we. What did we that. not try? Yeah. And then we actually there is a, we did try something actually, which we won't spoil. There is there is a a, a change in their sexual behavior uh, in episode eight. But it really does. It works. I mean. I, it, it's, I haven't seen many shows do it so well where it kind of, it, it almost removes the sex out of the realm of the erotic entirely. It's just, I mean, it, it is very much about 
who these two people are at their most vulnerable. And it's some of the few times you actually see Hawk actually being tender and loving and open, and then just kind of shuts himself down immediately when he's when he's through. Well, you know, that, the very first scene between Hawk and Tim, when Hawk, I mean, the very first uh, intimate scene when Hawk comes to Tim's apartment, you know, that actually, that's a scene, Mr. Mallon wrote that in his book, and that actually helped inspire the Hawk-Tim dynamic, that Hawk just is t totally bold, comes in the door and within seconds is saying, do you want me to kiss you? Um, and throwing Tim off, uh, off his, you know, uh, make unbalanced and, uh, and then going boom right to it and, and, and being very sort of just straightforward about it. So that actually Mr. Mallon's style of writing actually really inspired a lot of what we did with sex. Yeah. Talk a little bit about, you know, as, as the show moves forward through the decades and obviously it, it culminates in the AIDS crisis in the 80s. Um, you know, how did you draw on your own experience from that time and in your memories uh, to inform the writing of the show? Well, you know, the AIDS crisis, you know, is one of the uh, formative experiences of my life. Uh, I came out of the closet uh, in 77, 78. You know, and experienced the, the that, that brief time of uh, in the late seventies was fantastic, which we have an episode set in nineteen seventy nine, and you know, the dancing to Donna Summer and taking drugs, staying up all night, and all this stuff really, really fun, and the the pleasure of sex being a liberating life force to the gay community, the pleasure of just being naked with a bunch of guys. <laughs> uh, actually, I don't know if I ever did that, but uh, I've certainly thought about it. Obviously. Um, but then, you know, the cold shower, the, the, the plunge into darkness of the AIDS crisis and then being blamed, saying, you know, the sex that you that gives you so much joy in life is the thing that is uh, killing you and, and it deserve, you deserve to die because of it and having that huge reversal. So um, I just felt like if I was going to go forward and I, I wanted to see Hawk and Tim over uh, time. I was going to expand it. It just seemed very natural to go right to the AIDS crisis to address that again. And if you know, just as people, most many gay people, young people I know, many many people I know do not have never heard of the Lavender Scare. But you know, people are starting to forget about the AIDS crisis, um, and that is not is something that we cannot forget. You know, the in the Lavender Scare, our government actively per persecuted us. In the AIDS crisis, our government persecuted us through neglect and indifference, you know, and thousands of people died because the government was not willing to recognize that this serious thing was happening. And the AIDS community saw, uh, addressed it, you know, very powerfully and, and, and created, a, created a, a movement. So that, um, I just thought, you know, those are great bookends to the story. Yeah, and they do seem like eras that, that that younger people tend to forget. I mean, I grew up in the '80s and '90s, so it was always in the specter of the AIDS crisis. And and what do you think about you know reflect a little bit on the moment, the time we have left, where we find ourselves today. Uh, you know, obviously, people's visions of equality have changed dramatically. Inclusivity has changed dramatically. It's not the same kind of crisis that we were living through in the '50s or the '80s or even the '90s. Um, but but what are your thoughts on so many of the political movements that we're seeing that seem to be trying to roll back, you know, civil rights and in the advancement for the LGBT community? Well, you know, I think that you know the the answer, you know, in some ways is self evident obvious. You know that you know we it's I, I didn't plan it, but uh, 
it's I'm actually very happy that we have a a show about a demagogue, Joe McCarthy, who's uh, when we are being uh, seeing the rise of demagogues in our own country and in our allies, uh, other Western democracies. Um, and uh, and what do demagogues do? They accumulate power by creating fear and fear and division. And Joseph McCarthy was brilliant at that, actually. And Joseph McCarthy, I have to say, was in some ways smarter and more educated than the current crop of demagogues. But that doesn't make him, that doesn't make them less dangerous. Actually, their lack of education and intelligence in some ways makes them more dangerous than Joe McCarthy. Um, but uh, so that those parallels are really there. And in terms of the LGBTQ community, you know, I, um, you know, I've just been doing this for a long time. I went to my first demonstration in 1977. And, you know, and when I was there and I was able to come out of the closet because I stood on the shoulders of the people who 10 years earlier had been at, um, at Stonewall and had taken, you know, and they stood on the shoulders of the people in the 50s who reacted to the lavender scare like Frank Kameny and created the very, very first homosexual rights uh, uh, events. So I think it's important for us to remember that uh, we have been in tough times before that we have survived. We've not only survived, we've grown as human beings and we've grown as a community because of those tough times. And to find the joy in the struggle. You know, I, when I was an activist in the 70s and the 80s, I, did, I, wasn't, act, I wasn't an activist because I was trying to get people to love me. I don't really care. I actually don't care. I'm a, I'm a real old fashioned liberal. I'm a total First Amendment <laughs> believer. I, I, if you don't believe in homosexuality, that's fine. If your religion tells you it's wrong, great. God bless you. Just don't interfere with my life, you know. And I, I don't want to be liked, you know, by people who don't like me. Who cares? I probably wouldn't like you either. Let's just live in peace. But and the way we'll live in peace is that I have all my full civil rights, just as you do. So I think it's, but but artistically, I do think that identity has been at the core of my life and my work for my whole life. However, we are all human beings. And I, I, as we did on the show, let's not get trapped in our identity. Like you can only understand me if you are the same group of letters after your name as mine. Are you an L? Are you a G? Are you a T? Are you, you know, I don't believe that. You know, we have common universal human experiences. And we should celebrate uh, our common humanity, you know, while uh, advocating for our rights. Well, that's a great place to end. And the show, I should say, really does, it does span the gamut of that humanity. So if that was your intention, I think you pulled it off. Uh, uh, Ron Lesswinder, thank you so much for coming on to talk about the show. It's fellow travelers. People can watch it uh, on Showtime. I hope you do. Thanks, Ron, for coming on to talk to us. I really appreciate Thanks. it. It's been a real pleasure. Really pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.